If you're anyone like me, you might be wondering why Civil War era ghost would still be roaming amongst us. Today, we explore one of America's most haunted locations in hopes of answering that question. The Carton Mansion, located in Franklin, Tennessee, is rich, but has a very grim history tied to the Civil War, which makes it a hot spot for paranormal investigations of all kinds. And in today's episode, I'm going to be sifting through the historical accounts and even review the scientific investigations to bring you all the in-depth analysis. So you're going to want to tune in. Let's stop talking about it, though. Let's be about it. Let's go. In the stillness of night and the quiet of our minds, we often find ourselves yearning for stories that both terrify and intrigue stories of otherworldly apparitions and unexplained phenomena, but have you ever stopped to wonder, where does it all begin? Welcome to Retraced Echoes. First of all, welcome to another episode of Retraced Echoes. As always, I'm your host, my name is Bert, and today we're going to be covering this amazing mansion, the history here. Listen, if I had a TV and they said you can only watch so many channels, it would be the History Channel, Discovery Channel, and AMC because they got all the ghost shows. This location has ever, I could literally create an episode for all three of those channels. So we got a little bit of everything, which is amazing. I love the stories. The way that I'm doing these podcasts going forward is... On one day, we're going to cover just the ghost stories, and on a completely separate day, I'm going to break into the who, what, when, where, and how, if that makes sense, because I want to know, well, wait a second, (laughs) let's back the trolley up. I don't want anyone to freak out. In this one podcast, we're going to be doing both, but here in a couple seconds, we're going to be covering just the ghost stories, and we're going to do it in a very dramatic way with sound effects and music, and we're going to add some tone to it, and then after that... We're going to break down like we typically do everything from the background, the first encounters, the ghost stories, theories behind the haunting, scientific investigation aspects. We're even going to cover the skeptical point of views. And then at the end of it, we're going to conclude and determine, is this spot haunted or is it not haunted? But you're going to hear it all right here in this one podcast. So hopefully you love this new format. I'm looking super forward to it all. I think that it's going to make them a little bit more fun. In addition to that, if you know anything about the location that I'm talking about today and any of my social medias, we got a Facebook group, we got a Instagram, a Twitter, I think it's called X now, but in any of those spots, you can reach out to me and just tell me your side of the story. You can do it in DMs, you can do it in just the timelines, whatever you're more comfortable with. And if I like it, we might come back and do a secondary tale to the story because I only know right now what I've researched, which is still pretty awesome, but I'm recording these segments in two different days. So the first day, I'm just talking about the meat and potatoes, or should I say I'm recording the meat and the potatoes of what's going on just with the ghost stories. I don't truly know any of the other aspects until a separate day. So I've done my research. We've dug in. This one, let me tell you, (laughs) oh baby, this one has a little bit of everything. I think you're going to be pretty excited about it in the end. Now, since I've gave you guys an overview, let's dim the lights, steady our hearts, and prepare to step into the shadowy labyrinth of the unexplained and the uncanny. Let's go. Our story begins on a moonlit night in Franklin, Tennessee. 
where history and the supernatural converge at this mysterious mansion. As the clock strikes midnight, a shadowy figure materializes in the dimly lit corridors. Witnesses, both past and present, recount the same spine-chilling sight. An apparition shrouded in period clothing, a gown as black as the darkest night. Her body seems to glide silently through the grand halls. Her presence is accompanied by an unsettling wail, a mournful cry that pierces through the stillness of the night. It echoes as if the very walls themselves weep in response. To truly understand this spirit, we must delve into some dark and tragic history. During the American Civil War, the mansion served as a field hospital following the Battle of Franklin. The wounded and the dying found refuge within these walls, their pain and suffering etched into the very foundation of the house. Among them, a lady, known only as Sarah, who tended to the wounded soldiers. Her love and compassion was unwavering, providing solace to those in their darkest hours. But as fate would have it, Sarah's own beloved was among the casualties of war. Heartbroken and grief-stricken, she awaited his return with hopes diminishing with each passing day. Her despair, so profound, seems to have transcended death itself. And so, it is said, she remains, trapped in the perpetual state of mourning. Her wandering spirit continues to search for her love, her chilling wail, an eternal laminate. But questions still linger. Was Sarah really the Lady in Black? What was her true connection to the mansion? Why does her presence persist? These are the unsolved mysteries that continue to captivate all who encounter her. Beyond the creaking floorboards and shadowy corridors of the mansion, a haunting melody sometimes fills the air. A piano playing its source unseen. This is the tale of the phantom pianist, an apparition whose music lingers long after the keys have fallen silent. Visitors to the mansion have reported hearing faint but beautiful piano tunes drifting through the rooms. The notes seem to come from an antique grand piano, yet no living soul is near. Those who have encountered his ghostly piano speak of a feeling of nostalgia that accompanies the music, as if the past reaches out to touch the present. Legend has it that the Phantom Pianist was once a talented musician who lived in the mansion. Her life, however, was marred by heartbreak and tragedy, and her music became her only solace. As the story goes, she continued to play even after her passing, her music transcending the boundaries of life and death. Some believe that her spirit remains tethered to the mansion by her love of music. On rare occasions, witnesses have described attending otherworldly concerts within the mansion. They speak of the Phantom Pianist, playing for an audience of special guests, her music weaving a tapestry of emotions that defy description. The Phantom Pianist story reminds us that the music has the power to transcend time and place. Her performances serves as a reminder of the emotional imprints left behind by those who once called the mansion home. Of all of the spirits that still are within the mansion, 
one figure stands out, a distinguished yet mysterious presence. This is the tale of the Phantom General, a spirit forever tied to the mansion's history and its enduring mysteries. As you explore the mansion, you may encounter the apparition of a man in uniform, still commanding and his presence unmistakable. This is General William Harding, a figure of authority, even in death. Witnesses who have crossed paths with the general speak of a sense of reverence and all in his presence, as if he still oversees the mansion and the grounds. You see, General William Giles Harding was a prominent figure in Carton's history. Known for his leadership and contribution to the community, he played a crucial role in shaping the mansion and its legacy. It is said that his spirit remains bound, a guardian of its history and the values that he held dear in life. Visitors have reported observing the Phantom General in various parts of the mansion, standing in the Grand Hall, gazing out a window, or silently watching over the library. His presence is often accompanied by a feeling of respect and a sense of history come to life. The General's ghostly presence serves as a reminder that the past is not lost but endures in the story of the spirits that inhibit the mansion. His vigil over the mansion and its history continues, a silent testament to the enduring legacy of Carton. As we journey deeper into the chilling history of the mansion, our footsteps lead us to the very grounds that bore witness to one of the bloodiest chapters in the American Civil War, the Battle of Franklin. It was here on the hallowed grounds that the spirit of fallen soldiers are said to linger. Imagine, if you will, a moonless night. The vast fields that stretched beyond the mansion's grandeur was shrouded in darkness. But beneath the cloak of the night lies a very alive battlefield where the echoes of war refuse to fade. It is here that the visitors and historians alike have reported encounters with apparitions. Soldiers frozen in time. These warriors are said to march solemnly, as if reanimating a battle that unfolded over a century ago. Among the ranks, one can distinguish the uniforms of both Union and Confederate soldiers. They stand side by side, bound not by allegiance, but by the sheer tragedy of war. Now, some witnesses have described these apparitions as translucent their face etched with a haunting sense of duty. But the most mysterious of all, the Phantom Drummer. Many accounts tell of a distant rhythmic drumbeat that echoes through the night air. Some say it's a call to arms, a reminder of the battle's impending doom. Visitors, drawn by the source of the sound, are often greeted by quite a sight. A Confederate drummer boy, his ghostly form illuminated by an eerie glow as he marches to the beat only he can hear. These battlefield apparitions are a testament to the enduring legacy of the Civil War, a reminder that the echoes of history resonates far beyond the confines of the textbooks. Those who have crossed paths with these soldiers speak of a silence that envelopes the field, as if the fallen have found a way to communicate their sacrifice through the ages. The last of the ghost stories for this evening in a dimly lit room in the mansion, where history's echoes linger, we turn our attention to an unexpected source of the supernatural 
the mansion's antique mirrors. These reflective surfaces, once mere adornments, have become the conduits through which the otherworldly makes itself known. As you wander through the mansion's chambers, you'll encounter time-worn mirrors, their frames rich with history. These mirrors, relic of another era, hold secrets that defy explanation. Visitors to the mansion have reported fleeting apparitions, shadowy figures, and faces that do not belong to the living within the reflective depths of the mirror. It's as if the past seeks to communicate through the glass. Some accounts tell of a particular mirror that stands out, a tall, antique-looking glass that once belonged to the mansion's original owners. Those who gaze into it speak of an encounter of spirits who once called the mansion home. Among the most compelling stories is a lady in a Victorian-era gown, forever trapped in the mirror's reflection. Witnesses describe her as trapped between worlds, her eyes filled with longing and sorrow. Legend has it that this lady is Amelia, who never had the chance to give her final farewell before her beloved left for the war. Her spirit, it seems, remains tethered to the mirror, forever seeking closure. What about them ghost stories? Hmm? They run a sp- chill up your spine? <laughs> they run a sp- chill up mine. And that's before I added the music and everything else. I want to break into the history a little bit. The mansion, it was built in 1826. Now it was built by a very rich man, Randall McGavick. I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. It's McGavick or McGavick. I'm not sure. Now, he wasn't just wealthy, healthy, wealthy and wise. He was also the mayor of Nashville from 1824 to 1825. So his influence in that community was super heavy. Now, on my Instagram and spots like that, Instagram, Facebook, probably Reddit. I'm going to show some photos of this location. It's a very nice mansion. It's got large entryways, grand columns all over the place. One of the conversations I was having with my wife when I started doing research for just the ghost stories, I try to prevent any outside skepticism. I just want to know the ghost stories as though they're the gospel, but One of the big things was that the mansion actually has 22 bedrooms. (laughs) I was like, why would anyone need 22 bedrooms? It's crazy. And she said, and may I say she was right. Okay. You might want to record this if you're listening, Jess. You were right. Uh, A lot of times people do it just because they got money and they can. And we talked about that with, if you guys remember, if you've not went back and listened, go listen to it. Uh, We did a podcast on the Thomas Whaley house. And it was the same thing. Man just had a lot of money, built this grandiose location, and he had his house. He had a theater at one point in time, a general store. This was the same idea, I guess, is maybe the right word. I mean, he built the mansion with the intent of creating both the family home, like the Thomas Whaley house, Uh, that symbol of prosperity, but his aim was also create a living space that was both functional as like a plantation, but suitable for social gathering. Kind of, I think in the South, you just see more cases of men with money that that's what they wanted to do with their money. (laughs) Create a hot spot, like a social hub, so to speak. Now, going back to the Thomas Whaley house, this one also had another key component to it, and it was basically supported by the economy that was around him. So agriculture was a big thing there. 
they had to do like the cultivation of crops like tobacco and corn. So that was huge. Now, much again, like the Thomas Whaley house, when things are bad, things are bad. And we're going to be talking about the Civil War. So when this house was built, Civil War was not a thing. There was probably the indications that this was going to happen. But during the Civil War, that's going to turn a big dynamic in this entire story. Now, the McGavick family, they owned this house for generations. And with each era that came in, they left their own imprint on the estate, whether it be through the modifications or additions or the legacy of the residents. It's going to turn to a very interesting dynamic once we get a little bit deeper into some of those stories. Another thing that we have to dig into, it's imperative for me to talk about it, is... Again, we talked about the economic success being so important for this mansion, but it was built on the back of many enslaved people. So slave labor, unfortunately, was a common theme with Southern plantations. We talked about it last week with Oak Valley. This mansion was no exception. Slaves were were responsible for manual labor, which included everything from planting, harvesting, actually the processing of crops. So without their slave labor, this mansion would have never made it. The Carton Mansion was unfortunately a part of that grim history that so many of these southern plantations have, but it also is going to add to some of the story, the ghost stories and the feeling, the atmosphere of the stories. You have to know that part of the history to understand where we're going with the now. Now, a big thing that a lot of people don't necessarily think about is the dependency on these crops and slave labor. They were so significant that any kind of disruption, whether it be bad weather or maybe there was a certain disease that was affecting certain crops, it could have had very serious implications on the estate's financial stability. But my man Randall, for the most part, unlike Thomas Whaley, he had a lot of influence. You got to remember, he was former mayor, so... His network was deep, like we're talking about in the day and age where LinkedIn didn't exist. He had contacts all over the place. So that aided in the sale and the distribution of all the products he had, which helped the estate's financials. But much like Thomas Whaley, there were certain things that contributed that kind of put him in a bad spot. Prime example, when the Civil War unfolded, the Southern economy was screwed up. In places like the mansion, it felt that strain. Think about it. The property was known for crops, the tobacco, the corn, and all that stuff. During the Civil War, it was turned into a field hospital. We covered a little bit about about that in the ghost stories. We're going to cover a little bit more as we go on also. But in addition to that, after the war, you got to remember, after the Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves, again, not only did it change financially, but there was a reevaluation of labor. And even the economic practices across the South. So this location had significant changes in a very short time. I say very short time frame, but we're talking over the course of the house. That was a very small percentage of time. I mean, the reason that I bring all this up is you have to understand the economic foundation. It's, It's important just because it changes your dynamics on how you look at Everything from the cultural standpoint to the social dynamics. These are all things that shape that mansion over time. And I honestly look at this property like a looking glass of not just this house, but many of the properties within, at this point, Tennessee or any of those southern plantation areas. The whole dynamic completely changed. Now, we talked about it in the ghost stories a little bit, but you have to understand there was a battle of Franklin 
and the mansion actually played a huge role in that. The Battle of Franklin actually took place November 30th of 1864, and it was probably considered the most intense period in American Civil War. At least that's what I read in everything that was part of the notes, but if anything, it was definitely among the war's bloodiest encounters. The town of Franklin was actually like a perfect, well, some would say perfect, some would say a horrible place as far as location, but it was kind of a, I mean, a vital transportation communication hub. It was the spot where they could plan everything. So it was the focal point of not just the Confederate that was in that area, but also the Union soldiers that was there. Now, when I talk about it being probably one of the most brutal battles, there was heavy casualty on both sides. Some of the estimates that I read said there was around 10,000 casualties, which included everything from deaths and injuries, even missing soldiers. I think the idea is basically if there's missing soldiers, more than likely they were killed in battle. They was just never, they was never found. Now, that's not to say that some people didn't go AWOL and go to different areas. And we're talking about a time frame where it's not like you could put out a APB and find somebody, but for the most part, a lot of people just consider those missing soldiers just killed in action. Now, I'm sure you're probably saying to yourself, Bert, how did this thing become a hospital? Well, honestly, it was due to the proximity to the battlefield. Now, this plantation was actually repurposed into the makeshift hospital, so the house and its surrounding properties became the scene of some of the biggest tragedies that was ever told. And they were performing emergency medical procedures there. I mean, makeshift surgeries. How creepy is that? And then on top of it, it was actually a holding area for the wounded and the dying. Now, one thing that we don't think about because it's 2023, but back during the American Civil War, if you had a house or let's say a building or property or whatever it may be, it was not uncommon for your house or property to be commandeered or even occupied by soldiers, especially in areas near the front lines. Now, we talk about this location. It was basically right there. Again, this area was serving as that hub for the transportation and all that stuff. So unfortunately, a lot of times they would come and they would just commandeer that house. Like they would come to your door, knock on it, knock, knock, knock. This is now ours. We're using this. What a horrible location for that house to be in. But once the war started happening there, John and Carrie McGavick, they opened their house up. It was there to serve the wounded. And I couldn't even imagine what that's like. A lot of the tales, when they talk about the floors of the mansion, they said it was stained deep with the blood. And John and Carrie, they even dedicated a portion of their land as a final resting spot for the Confederate soldiers who lost their lives in battle. Now, for just a couple seconds, we're going to nerd out on the history because it's Burt History Channel, love the history. So we talk about the Civil War and how Franklin was such a vital spot, right? It's like the hub for everything. Well, when it came to the Battle of Franklin, it had such huge ramifications on that area, right? And it was a significant loss to the Confederacy when it fell in defeat. And again, we got to think about that area fell that was a strategic position, and anyone that knows, a few months later, the entire war was over, but that had a direct effect on that entire southern morale. And again, this mansion was in the center of all of that. So you look at it, this mansion was built, it was turned into a plantation, it was all about crops and prosperity and building a big thing. Then the war breaks out. 
right? This war breaks out. Southern prosperity now becomes, honestly, the horrors of war if we're looking at it. So its role as a makeshift hospital, though it was an endearing part of its history, it contributes to what we know now is probably some of the best paranormal activity known to man. So I'm sure there's a portion of you going, Bert, why are you telling us all the history? This is a ghost channel. The reason for that is to understand the now, you have to understand the then. And I believe when we start looking at the ghost stories, which we talked about earlier, we look at the first encounters, there's a lot of the history that's going to play into a lot of this. Now let's talk about some of those first encounters. When it comes to the Carton Mansion, there's things recorded here that's a little bit different than the norm, at least as far as what we've talked about. Now, there's the typical sounds, the apparitions, things like that. First, let's jump into the time frame, right? The first reports of unusual occurrences happened just decades after the Civil War, which is not necessarily unexpected, I guess. One question I've never really dove into and I might want to actually do some research on is typically after these occurrences, what's a common time frame? Is it five years, 10 years, 15 years? I'm not really sure of that part, but the initial reports of the phenomena that they was having is not something uncommon to what we would hear about today with apparitions, disembodied voices, and even some unexplained sounds, which we're going to dig into a little bit. I've got a really cool story that I didn't want to put into the story part of it. We're going to be coming to that here in a couple minutes. I really like that story. There's actually a part of it that is probably more folklorish, but it sounded really cool. But the one thing you got to remember is a lot of these early accounts, they build that foundation for the current narrative around, hey, this is why this mansion is haunted, which... You know, it is what it is. As far as the witnesses, they range from everyone from the original family to visitors and even caretaker. And a lot of times you can consider these anecdotal, kind of passed down from father to son, as our intro says in Deceptive Reality. But sometimes it was documented in journals or even local historical records. So there's some credibility there. And the fact that there's a lot of longevity and consistency in these reports To me, that just adds another layer of credibility, if anything. I think it's easy for the skeptics to say, well, you know, these could all be made up. But when you see the same track record over and over again, it's easy to point your finger and go, there's something to that, right? Like I say that all the time on this podcast and on the other podcasts that I co-host with my buddy Nick. A lot of times I look at this person said X, Y, and Z. And then I look a little bit later and I go, hmm, this person said X, Y, and Z. They're not connected. But the fact that they're saying the same thing to me adds a little bit of credibility. Now, skeptics totally get it. They're going to say eyewitness testimony is subjective, right? It's like the old game of telephone when you're a kid. One person whispers in this kid's ear, then they whisper in another kid's ear, then they whisper in another kid's ear. Even though the facts was at the very beginning, By the time it gets to the sixth or seventh kid, the story's way different, right? And there's some truth to this. Again, we're talking about the 1800. Good God, look at what they had to do to even write this stuff down. (laughs) It's not like the olden days when they had to chip away at stone, but a lot of this was just passed down information, just local folklore versus actual reports. So I get it. I understand where the skeptics come from, but maybe it's just me. But I think that both the local folklore and the actual reporting, I think that They both, within reason, contribute to the mansion's reputation at best, right? Because even though, just like in the game of telephone, 
even though the story's not exactly the same, it's still rooted in some truth. So some part of that truth is still there. Now, a big thing when we talk about this mansion is there are a lot of sightings of apparitions and all of them are dressed in Civil War uniforms. Most commonly Confederate soldiers, right? I think we all could assume that was going to be what was there. But again, these reports to me, they validate the assumption that the mansion's haunting is more than likely part of its Civil War past. So again, whether it's residual hauntings or Some people will call them emotional hauntings. I guess the reason that I almost go back to residual all the time is a lot of visitors will report hearing sounds like cannonballs or even the cries of commands, almost like the war is still going on. And a lot of these auditory experiences, they add to the thought process to me anyway, as this being a residual haunting, it's almost like, again, it imprints itself onto the land. And I think there's a big part of that. And you got to remember, the mansion, it was turned into that makeshift hospital during the Battle of Franklin. So from inside the mansion, what do they report? They report hearing moans and gasps and cries. And it just goes, I mean, the room that was used for operating during the war, it's cited as a hotspot for paranormal activity. So again, there's something to whenever there is a haunting, somehow it's imprinting itself in that area. And going back to obviously the emotional part of it, you know, the Civil War was a a period marked by profound emotional and physical suffering. It's not like it was just one or the other. And a lot of times, The two will coincide when they talk about residual and emotional. It's almost like they're the same, but they're a little bit different. And a lot of paranormal research often suggests that such strong emotional imprints will lead to to the residual hauntings themselves, especially like recording these moments in the atmosphere of the land or the location or the house or even the objects, right? A lot of times... And this mansion's no different. They have items from that period, such as surgical instruments. Heck, there's clothes, even furniture. And a lot of people believe that that's like an anchor for paranormal activity. So the land, the things, everything about this mansion screams. If there was a way to imprint a part of that history, it's got to be imprinted here. It has to be. But again, looking at it skeptically... It's at a minimum, it's worth noting that the mansion's well-documented Civil War history could also influence a lot of the visitors' expectations when they get there anyway, right? If the assumption is, hey, there's all this imprinted stuff from the Civil War, are they more apt to look for that kind of sound or those kind of experiences? Or even if they see something out the corner of their eye, Instead of just saying, oh, I saw this figure, are they going to say they saw the figure of a Confederate soldier? Because now that's what their mind's going to. I understand the skeptical point of view. I really, really do. But again, it's based on how many of these reports we're actually seeing. Now, we dug into the ghost stories a little bit, but there was a few that I left out. One of which kind of, it hit me weird. It hit me a little weird. I was having trouble recording it. I tried to record it. I just didn't feel right about it. So I just want to talk about it here. It's the case where, and it's called the weeping soldier is what everyone calls this. And it's basically an apparition that's described as a Confederate soldier. 
And when people see him, he's frequently seen near the cemetery where hundreds, if it's truly a Confederate soldier, hundreds of his comrades are buried there. And typically, the most striking feature that they see is oftentimes they see what appears to be him weeping. And that just hit me weird, right? Because it's almost bad enough to have emotions when you are alive to then think that if they aren't just replaying history over and over again, that you would have those in the afterlife too, if that makes sense, right? Like how horrible would that be if he'd have to live forever weeping over the, it, again, it goes back to, I think it almost has to be just like the replaying of a record, right? Or like a loop, like if you've got something on a loop, you're just playing it over and over again because if this is someone weeping over someone that he lost in the war, wouldn't they be on the same side as him now? And then there wouldn't be that sadness? There's something to that. There's something to the whole looping thing. And I believe there's different types of paranormal activity, but in that case, I'm just going to hope there's just a, a looping in, in in that situation. I don't want to think that anyone's grieving on the other side. Now, the story of the weeping soldier, when it, when you look at the actual witness accounts, it comes from all ranges, all walks of life, whether it be the visitors or even professional tour guides that are there. Their varied reports, in my opinion, lead some of that credibility to the sighting, suggesting that they're not merely resulting from one person's imagination or like a misconception, but if everyone, again, is seeing the same thing, they're talking about the same thing, they report the same thing, there's got to be something to it. Now, there's more stories than just that. There's the footsteps in the operating room. That's a big one. And the cool thing about that one, in my opinion, is it's just not paranormal investigators is hearing that. There's also nighttime security personnel. And what's happening is they're hearing these footsteps and then they've got to go check it out because what if someone has broken in and now they're walking around this location? They have to check it out. So that, in my opinion, adds some credibility. There's also a lady in the garden and they say that they see her. She's in period dress and she's walking around the garden area. Now, one of the crazy things, and I don't really understand this part of it, a lot of times they'll smell a mysterious smell of roses and that's always when they see her one of the more disturbing ones and i've actually done a lot of research on this because i wanted to roll this one out a little bit was disembodied voices in the children's room so a lot of times i'll hear children laughing or children crying and it's heard in the mcgavick's children area where they used to play now every report that i've seen has not shown any reports that they lost any children in that household that Oh my gosh, I was hoping and praying that wasn't in the story. Now, almost as creepy is a lot of times people will experience what they say is the feeling of small hands reaching up and tugging on their clothes. That? Creepy. If Bert was in there, Bert is now out. I'm done. Kids laughing, kids crying, small hands tugging on my clothes. I'm good. Now, even though... There was no children themselves that was supposedly lost. There was a period where there was a high morbidity rates for children due to various illnesses. And honestly, 
poor medical treatment. Back then, we didn't know as much as we know now. So to say that there's an unreport cases, possibly. But I'm going to go a slightly different reason because I don't want to think that way. In my opinion, it's worth considering the psychology of the witnesses, right? We're talking about the Civil War. The children obviously experienced that. They heard that. Think about it. They saw all these things happening. Who's to say that much like the other cases we're talking about, the children's demeanor or emotional status imprinted itself into those rooms? That I could almost understand. That would explain the activity reported, right? The laughing, the crying, the tugging on the clothes. All of that stuff would have been things that would have happened back then. I'm going to go with there was like a, a residual energy or an imprint that was left behind. And it just it captured the emotional or the significant moment of the lives of the children at that time frame. Now, one big thing that we have to talk about is when paranormal investigators have came in, they've actually captured the evidences of these laughs and audio recordings. They've interviewed other people that's had these situations, and they've even felt the tugs on their clothes. So it's not just someone saying it. Again, if you're a skeptic, you're going to say these investigators are going in looking for that. But they've captured a lot of this audio and video And honestly, if you just do a little bit of research online, you can find it. In our stories, we talked about the phantom pianist. Now, a lot of times there's recordings that you can find online where you can hear that piano playing. Now, from I try to look and I try to look through articles. I've seen a couple of videos where people's walked through the mansion. I've not seen a piano or seen reference to a piano. So... The best that I can conclude is that there's no way that source of music could occur. And the music that I hear in those recordings, they're all period specific. Like you're not listening to top 40 over here. <laughs> you're not, there's no pianos of the top 40 going on. And this is all period Civil War style music. Another creepy one is when people's walking around, when they see there's a family portrait of the McGavicks there. And the reports say that when you're walking around the eyes of the the McGavick family portrait, they appear to follow you. So as you're moving around the, the room, their eyes are following you. And there's been multiple accounts, particularly with first time visitors that note that. So it's almost like if it's your first time there, they're watching you. They're keeping that watchful eye because that's their mansion. That also gave me the thought process of the Haunted Mansion at Disney. <laughs> it had the same vibe. Now, this is another story. There was actually a story that I was going to release. I've not released it yet. Maybe eventually in the future I will. It was on a bridge. It was called like Stucky's Bridge. I did. I've never released it for my podcast. I actually wanted to change it up because I found some stuff. But one of the things that it talked about there, and in this case, very similar There's lights that's in the cemetery. In the case of the Stucky Bridge, there was lights that was near the the creek. The reason that I bring up that occurrence is it's always a flickering of lights. And the way that it's typically reported is no different than the flicker of a light in a lantern. And again, that's not a case that you hear commonly unless... 
It has credibility from a time from a long time ago. And in this case, whenever they talk about the flickering of the light, it's in the Confederate cemetery at night. And there's locals that have caught some of this on video. And I know the skeptics say, ah, it could be someone out there just doing this with flashlights and stuff. Again, it's easy to say something doesn't exist, but that's not a common occurrence. That's not something you hear a lot of in ghost stories. And the last one that we're going to go over, and y'all knew it was coming, is the shadow figures in the slave quarters. Now, I hate these part of the stories because I can't even imagine the suffering that occurred at these plantations. We talked about it at Oak Valley, right? There was the cries that was imprinted supposedly on the land there, as well as there was, as people would get closer, the they would assume they would hear it, but a lot of times the sounds would stop. This is no different. In this case, there's always an unexplained shadowy figure that's seen in the area where slaves were housed. And as people get close, it's almost like poof, it disappears. And these reports often come from locals. And sometimes there's even historian or like history enthusiasts and amateur investigators. So again, some of those smaller investigation teams that hasn't made it big, they report those cases also. Now I want to talk about the theories behind the hauntings. Now I'm going to start with what I believe is happening, which is residual energy and a lot of times when we talk about residual energy is generally during periods of intense emotional and physical trauma which this listen we're talking civil war if there was ever intense emotional and physical trauma it was during the civil war and that's for the people that was in the war and the people that were not in the war again we talk about this mansion it was blood covered the blood seeped into the floorboards of that mansion and think about it there's probably bodies that was buried in the land that was never put in the cemetery now some people will say there's unfinished business there and a lot of times they'll talk about it in case let's use for example the weeping soldier some would say that's unfinished business that's why it's there i would almost lean more to that being again a residual or even like the energy, we're just going to call it residual energy. That's what we're going to call it. But there's people that believes that there's the family ties, right? The McGavick family is, they've got that emotional tie to that residence. Or like the Phantom Pianist story, kind of the same thing there. Another part of it, I still think it goes back to residual hauntings, but they do split it up. Haunted Objects. Things such as the furniture or the clothing or even war artifacts. In my opinion, if the residual energy can get stuck in the land, why could it not get stuck in the artifacts? I believe it's all the same. I believe it's all the same exact thing. Now, some would say there's also a cemetery connection. Which I get, there's always the stories of, oh, this is near a cemetery or someone built on top of a cemetery. And I think there's a thing to that. I'm not saying that there's not. Could it tie into everything? I believe that's true also. Whenever someone builds on top of a cemetery or near a cemetery, they have all kinds of activity also. But with this location, when I hear about 
all of the activity, it's almost always revolving around period clothing, Confederate soldiers, even the Union soldiers are seen there. It's always Civil War period things. Typically, when we talk about things, let's use, for example, someone builds on top of a cemetery. There's actually a really cool apartment building story that I'm going to probably tell on this channel near where I live, where they found this old barn. There was a family that apparently was massacring people and burying them in the, the barn. It wasn't until years later that they was digging up, they tore everything down and they was like working on the land to build something. They ended up putting an apartment complex where that was and that entire complex was haunted. We'll tell that story, but anytime we talk about there being a cemetery connection, there's always some type of phenomena that's occurring. Now we talked about all the things that could potentially make this place haunted. Totally get it. And we've even looked at like skeptical viewpoints, but we need to probably dig into the skeptical just a little bit more. Listen, no one get mad at me, okay? We just need to, to look at it as a possibility. So I always set up a segment of the podcast just talking about the skeptical viewpoint. Now it goes without saying that people are more likely to notice and remember experiences that confirm their pre-existing beliefs, right? So a prime example, if I was to go into a house, let's use as an example that I believe, based on stories or if other people have told me is haunted, anything that I see or anything that I hear, I would probably believe is paranormal. Now, it'd be my goal if I was to go into one of these haunted locations to not have that preconceived idea and even necessarily look for it. But some of those experiences would probably have to be discounted at best. And then if you look at the anecdotal evidence, right? A lot of times personal testimonies, while they are compelling, they're not always the same as empirical evidence, right? They're subject to human error, like misremembering or exaggerating. We talk about this all the time on Deceptive Reality, my other podcast, where when something happens to me, I automatically think it was significantly worse or more, more heightened than what it truly was. So that's why there's importance of having the video, having the audio. And let's be honest, there is a lack of scientific evidence for the most part. Despite the numerous accounts, there's still not a lot of evidence such as video or audio recordings that can be scrutinized and verified. That's why this location needs more ghost, or should I say paranormal investigation. More ghost stories would be nice too. <laughs> and we got to delve into some of the natural psychological phenomena that's mistaken just simply for paranormal activities, such as if there's electrical problems causing the lights to flicker or the house is settling, which causes noises. Those are probably the most common. But again... I think there's credibility when we go back and we look at things such as how many times are we seeing this? When is this occurring? Is there other thing that's occurring when this one said thing occurs? And that's how you build credibility when we talk about paranormal. Now, along that same thought process, a lot of times when I hear stories of hauntings, they can typically be traced back to a specific cultural fear or even beliefs 
that were prevalent at the time that the stories originated, right? Like I remember when Bigfoot used to be a huge thing or Sasquatch, right? I always feel weird talking about Bigfoot, but that just doesn't sound like the right name. Like I'd feel like if I was Bigfoot, I'd be ticked off that someone calls me Bigfoot. But, you know, back in that time frame when those stories became more standard, I guess you could say, it was not uncommon for me to look around and because I have that preconceived concept, be looking for that. And stories can become embellished over time, right? It's like the old fishing story. I caught this five-inch fish, but it becomes 12 inches by the time I tell the story. And that transforms a actual rational explanation into a full-blown haunting tale. I guess one thing to look at and I mean, honestly, it's the way we should live, period, is we need to employ critical thinking. Whenever we're evaluating our own personal accounts, or even if we listen to other people's accounts, just take a moment to look at the critical thinking of the case. I don't think there's anywhere else we can go on this podcast, if we're being 100% honest. I think there's so much stuff there that could make this place, quote unquote, haunted. Personally, I believe hands down this location has all the the necessary means to be a haunted location. I think this was accurately portrayed as a top 10 location for probably Tennessee based on what I see. With all that said, if you enjoyed this podcast, I can personally guarantee that you're going to love a podcast that I do with a friend of mine, Nick, named Deceptive Reality. Now, that podcast... It's going to be more than just the spooky ghost stories that we talk about here. It's going to range from everything from the Mothman. It's going to be things such as the infield poltergeist. Let's be honest. Do you know what actual true life story inspired the movie E.T.? I can tell you that that podcast is already over there. You're going to want to go check it out. You'll see our release on that every Friday at 7.45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, if you thought this story was exciting, I've got something even more compelling for you for next week. We're actually going to be venturing to the great state of Hawaii, Honolulu, baby, the Queens Medical Center. You're not going to want to miss that one. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and review the podcast. I want you to share your personal experiences or questions related to the episode and If you know any stories about the Queens Medical Center, or if you've personally had an experience at the Queens Medical Center, reach out to me this week. I'm looking for people. This is going to be the podcast we're doing next. I want to know your stories. Maybe I'll add it dramatically to my story next week. But until then, keep retracing those echoes. And remember, some echoes aren't just heard, they're felt. Goodbye.